Fusion Patrol is a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can help support us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Each week, we look at a different science fiction TV episode or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're looking at the uh, fourth episode of Nigel Neal's ATV TV series, Beasts. This episode entitled Baby. Joe and Peter Gilks have recently moved to the country and are having their cottage renovated by two local workmen, Stan Biddick and Arthur Grace. Joe is a housewife, country-born and six months pregnant. She's been pregnant before, but without success. Peter splits his time between being a vet and a first-class asshole. He's a city boy who's moved to the country to be James Harriet. He's tired of expressing neurotic poodle's anal glands and wants to get his arm up to the shoulder in a cow's backside. That is, when he's not shouting at his wife. It's clear she's not as thrilled about moving to the country as he is. Joe has just brought the family cat, Mudslinger, to the cottage, and he screams and yowls from the moment she brings his basket in the door until she lets him out, when he promptly bolts out the door and keeps running till he's out of sight. In the evening, Peter decides the workmen aren't moving fast enough and he starts doing some of the demolition work himself. He uncovers a large earthen jar bricked up in the 300-year-old wall. Inside, they find the mummified remains of something. Peter the vet cannot identify it, neither dog nor cat. It looks rather like a pig, but furry, or like a lamb, but with claws. He is fascinated by it. She is horrified by it but he won't take it out and bury it. He wants to show it to his new partner, senior local vet and colorful character Siegfried Farnham. No, sorry, Dick Pummery. He leaves the mummy at the house when he goes to work the next day, and when the workmen see it, they think it should be gotten rid of. Joe agrees and takes it out to the fire in the yard and drops it in, just as Peter pulls up and shouts her down, rescuing it from the flames. That night... Dick comes over and does a lot of talking about the somewhat dark history of the cottage and the surrounding land. The house was previously owned by the Jacksons, a childless couple who tried to run a dog farm. They never made a go of it, though. The dogs kept spontaneously aborting. Funny that. That's the same reason the land isn't used for cattle, either. Spontaneous abortions. Must be a germ or something in the soil in the area that causes it. All this talk of something in the area causing spontaneous abortions makes Joe feel absolutely confident that this is the right place for her to be right now. No, strike that, it makes her hysterically worried for the safety of her unborn child. Not to worry, my dear, couldn't happen to humans, says Dick, and that calms her down a lot. Read, not at all. With the fun and uplifting evening coming to an end, Peter shows Dick the mummy. He finds it fascinating, too. They decide to take it back to the practice and do a post-mortem on it. Joe is thrilled to get it out of the house. Just one problem. 
The bag starts to break as Dick makes to leave, so rather than find another bag, Peter sneaks the mummy upstairs and into the nursery where he locks it in a cabinet. No need to worry Joe that it's still in the house. He'll take it to work in the morning, unless he forgets, which he does. Next day, the workman and Joe are gossiping about the creature. Arthur thinks it's a thing that had a purpose. A dark purpose. A thing that was made to do dark things. Made by somebody who'd have been wise in them dark ways. A thing like that would have been suckled, too, by a human. All this talk has Joe upset again, and she goes into the woods looking for her cat. She fails to find him, but while out, she sees and hears a strange shadow in the woods and runs all the way home in a fright. The workmen knock off early, and Joe is left at home alone. She hears sounds, and she finds the locked cabinet in the nursery. She goes downstairs investigating and discovers the earthen jar in the doorway with the door open. Outside, she hears that sound again. Peter arrives. He's in a right state. Dick put him to work on some pigs, and the pigs got the better of him. He's covered in, let's be charitable and call it muck. And he's livid at Dick, who laughed at him. That's it. I hate it here. I can't work with that man. I've decided to quit. This is the best news Joe could hear, and she confides to Peter that she hates it here. He, of course, dismisses that as the pregnancy talking. But it doesn't really matter about her. The important thing is he doesn't want this job anymore, and he's quitting in the morning. Downstairs, Joe notices that the rocking chair is moving, as if someone was, or is, sitting in it. At this moment, Dick and his wife Dorothy show up with booze. He's in a festive mood and has come to make amends with Peter. He's there to celebrate his baptism of fire, the incident with the pigs. It happens to all the vets, and he passed with flying colors. Peter, presented with a bottle of booze, doesn't immediately quit, and an evening of drunkenness ensues. For everyone but Joe, of course. By the end of the evening, Peter and Dick are best friends again, and the idea of quitting is long gone. And also, Joe has seen the mysterious shadow inside the house. As Dick and Dorothy leave, Joe overhears a comment that makes her think Peter kept the mummy in the house after all. When she asks him, he lies and tells her he didn't. Later that night, Peter is unconscious in bed, and Joe is hearing the sounds of wood being gnawed. She gets up to investigate and finds the cabinet in the nursery chewed up and destroyed. She also finds the remnants of the bag and realizes what was in the cabinet. Not content with just that small horrifying discovery, she goes downstairs by herself for more. She hears contented, suckling noises and the sound of the rocking chair. As she looks at the moving chair, a horrible black clad, disfigured woman is suckling the now reanimated creature. Joe screams in terror and collapses in the empty room. And so ends another episode of, well, that never happened on all creatures great and small. All right. Trivia time, then. If T.P. T. McKenna actually did appear in the TV movie of all creatures... Uh, no, sorry, uh, the, not TV movie, t movie movie... Of all creatures, uh -huh. great and small, but he did not play Siegfried. That was the role taken by Anthony Hopkins. So they had different casts playing it in the movie. Different from from the TV series, the, the later TV series. Yes. Oh, I so it was an earlier film. I I don't know. I I was not aware there was an all creatures great yes. and small film. It was, it was probably a 
about a year or so before this um, was made, actually. So I can't imagine that had any impact on the casting. But um... No, I, I mean, I've seen T.P. McKenna once in a while here and there. Indeed, in one of the greatest episodes of The Avengers, not to mention the greatest show in the galaxy. Uh, well, that one's not a tick in the asset column, but uh, <laughs> uh, which episode of Avengers? Uh, well, he's in several, but Death at Bargain Prices is is one of my favourites. Mm, I can I can picture him, but I can't. Yeah, I can't place the episode, but or episodes. But he's just one of those guys you see, and uh, and he's usually playing a type. Yeah. Um, at least the ones I see. Anyway, he is he's sort of playing that sh- almost showy. Uh, bravado yes uh, he, he doesn't generally play introverts yes <laughs> okay fair enough fair enough so uh what did you think of baby well it made me think of when in our last discussion you talked about watching unpleasant characters being unpleasant for an hour and mm-hmm. although joe is reasonably sympathetic i think generally the women are rather sympathetic um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty inclined to agree with your analysis of uh, Peter as being um, mm, vet mm-hmm. and asshole, and clearly better at the latter. Uh, quite like yeah. outstanding, um, outstanding in his class, I would say. <laughs> he, um, so that's Simon McCorkendale playing that part, and. I don't know how much Simon McCorkendale made it in shows that ended up in the United States. I, I, the only thing I know of, and I, I've mentioned this to you in the past, and it drew a blank stare, and that's lucky for you. Because in that same era of all the, the awful 80s, I think 80s, early uh, TV shows, science fiction-ish TV shows in the United States that completely and utterly failed to exist, Simon McCorkendale was the star of Manimal. Uh, and that's principally because he was supposed to be a cultured professor who had uh, uh, learned how to transform into various animals and solve crimes. And uh, I wish I was making that synopsis up, but there you go. It's a bad show. It's a bad premise. And... Nobody could salvage that. So you can't watch it Manimal, watch Manimal and think, you know, terrible, terrible show, but that McCorkendale guy must be a hell of an actor because you just can't tell. So I don't, I can't say I've ever seen him in anything else except for this, which is obviously much younger, and that. And I was not convinced by his performance. As an arsehole or as Manimal. (laughs) as as an asshole (laughs) I mean I'm convinced obviously the words are there and the shouty is there but I could never see what triggered it does that make sense he just he just goes there and because he's a natural why would anybody marry that that was the problem I had yes uh, you know, it didn't. No. It didn't seem like we had a history of them being a, a couple that's on the ropes and about to to break up. Or, uh, I mean, yeah, they obviously seem like they're about to break up in a way. But it it didn't strike me as it didn't. They didn't convey that very well. And you just look at this guy and say, 
wow, he is either up or sh or down or and and there is no there's no logic to it. It just it just yeah <laughs> spews forth. It does, but it it's it's not unrecognizable. I, I okay. When he gets out of the truck, when he gets out of the truck, and he's covered in muck, and he's mad. Okay, I get that. I don't. I don't. I don't need to see that one. I don't. I don't need to believe that one. You you just drove home covered in pig muck, and you've been laughed at by your boss or your partner and and you feel humiliated I, that one is the one time he comes in and he just suddenly starts shouting and i believe it i i, I say okay th this guy's personality but other times he just gets triggered off so easily that i feel like there has to be more there to it but there isn't and maybe that's just i don't think i've ever met anybody that's quite that much of a uh a, asshole in that way so i don't know i, I just wasn't i i wasn't he's controlling and uh, he's abusive i don't i don't think it needs to be i don't think it needs to be triggered he's he's just he doesn't care about anyone else he's completely self-absorbed that is uh i guess that is true i can i can try to take it for that then in that case i'm i don't know i just maybe his acting just doesn't doesn't nail it for me but i mean is is he i know he's dead um and has been for quite some time um is he you know is he is he famous for anything else um like no um, i had to, i i obviously i didn't know manimal and i had to look him up okay um and i don't recognize anything he's been i see he was in uh, 1979 quatermass um but i haven't seen it I haven't seen right. any of the other things he's been in. Hmm. Okay. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was like the guy last week. Was that Martin Shaw, who went on Martin to be Shaw. somebody? He's seen a lot yeah. of Martin Shaw. No. I. Well, I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. He's just not crossed my radar. Oh yeah. So you're right. Okay. He died ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Quite young. As yeah. Well. He's. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, what did, what did you think of? Well, okay. You said everybody's unpleasant. Obviously. Dick is unpleasant um, in a different way, um, but he's definitely not a sympathetic character. But I feel like he tries a little harder. Yes, yes, he's not. He's not that unpleasant. It's just you're looking. You're looking for someone who you can. I don't know who you can like because I mean the thing about Joe is you can sympathise with her, but even she is a bit wet. Yeah, she's yeah. It's kind of hard to care. Uh, yes, because she, uh, I hate to say this, but I mean, she doesn't stand up for herself at all to Peter and yeah, <laughs> she does I think, dumb I things. Think part, part of the, part of the problem with that perhaps is that you get, obviously she's, she's, she's reacting to what turns out to be a real threat, but mm you get the sense that she is just sort of the when she when she complains about this there is a there is a lack of credibility about it it's almost as if she because she's a sort of got a slightly nervous personality and she's winding herself up that it it could easily be just 
nothing at all. And in a way, it's the same problem you had with Elizabeth Sellers' character in during Barty's party. It's like the 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 whole threat is someone who could at first easily be just imagining something and not just imagining something because there are strong external reasons to do so. They're just disposed to nervousness. Wow. You know, pregnant, those hormones, that sort of stuff. I mean, Peter dismisses it as that. Actually, I think several times in the course of this, they kind of dismiss it as the pregnancy. And you get a sense that he would dismiss it as something else if she weren't pregnant. I, I agree. I agree that he would. Um, I, I used I used the word hysterically intentional, uh, mm-hmm. intentionally earlier, um, because you know the, the the roots of that word are the same as the roots of of hysterectomy. It's it's a it was considered a woman thing, and that's what they're putting it down here on, and and unfairly, I think. I mean, it, it is this thing is real, right? The, the threat is yeah. real here. Yes. Yeah, we, yeah. I mean, for once, we get very uh, definite proof of that. What is the proof of that? Is it seeing it in the rocking chair well, see, or is it yes, the chewed yes. up uh, cabinet? Well, I, think, I think it's seeing it in the rocking chair. I think that was... Because she was could just be hysterical the there. Nose. Oh, you mean that she's just seeing a vision? Yeah. I mean, it's not there I when guess. she collapses. No, but isn't that because it's a magic thing? Well, it could be that <laughs> I don't, know. But, but I don't know. Magic but, or imagination? Which one's more likely? <laughs> we're we're, we're, like, we're back know. to the paranormal. I mean, she could be imagining that the, the cabinet has been eaten open, but, it, but then she didn't actually know that it was inside the cabinet. So, yeah, that's true. Although she might have suspected I, when she when she figured, when he lied to her and said, "No, I didn't hide it," and she knew that was locked, which I think she thought was weird. So I I came away not questioning it. I thought, you know that. She's, she saw something that she actually saw because we saw it. I, I agree. I came off with it. I, I walked away from it and said, okay, that was, that was a thing. That was a thing. Mm. Um, but subsequently, I got to thinking about the way this show has been and at times. And I asked myself, well, wait a minute. Can I, can I reverse engineer this so that maybe it's not? Not a thing. Yes, they found the jar. Everybody's seen the jar. No doubt about that. Everybody's seen the thing, the dead thing. No doubt about that one. The jar moved. Yeah, okay. Only she saw that. Uh, Only she saw the shadows. Um, Only she heard the sounds. You know, if the next morning they had gotten up, would Peter have seen the chewed up cabinet? Is she dead on the floor or just unconscious uh, I, I have no idea no idea why I mean that was just that was just the end what well, the episode ran out I don't know whether there was a yeah and then a, a conclusion that we were supposed to draw from what happened to her there it's a terror that made her spontaneously abort the child um I don't know I don't know it it it, it was it was good in as much as, apart from the fact that I'm, I'm just literally screaming at her, do not go down stairs. <laughs> right? You're, 
You've mm. just seen that something has chewed up a wooden cabinet. You're terrified of shadows and things that scare your cat and that that nasty mummy thing. And and yet you still go downstairs. I was annoyed unarmed. by that, that she didn't go but she didn't go and try and wake Peter again. Wake idiot boy. Yeah, that would have been a good one. That would have been a good try, although I think we were supposed to get from that that he was so drunk that it would have been impossible to wake him. But Yeah, I'd I'd have been Yeah. I'd have been trying to I'd have, I'd have just gone in the room and closed the door and said I can wait till morning. I I would not have not have gone downstairs. And so that part apart from that bit, which I think I think is the filmmaker's craft here where you have to know it's a bad idea in the audience so that it builds the tension so that when the reveal comes, it gets its most impact. And I will say, mm. bad effects though they may have been, it worked. It 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 put the hair up on the back of my neck. Mm. I I wasn't feeling it, I've got to say. Um, and it, but and then it, it just sort of runs it made out. Me think back to to Barty's party and why they didn't. We, you know, we talked about them not showing the the menace. Well. This is exactly the reason why you don't. I think they probably shouldn't have shown the menace the second time. I will say that. Well, it is that classic thing of, you know, they'd obviously they'd obviously put a lot of effort into it, even if the results weren't that stunning. So they didn't want I, all that effort to be just for a half second of screen time. I, I will say this. If I, if I saw that in the rocking chair of my house, I would you know, evacuate my pants. Probably, <laughs> um, you know, no matter how hokey it is. I mean, <laughs> just do it just like <laughs> for the, the, the shock value of something that's not supposed to be there in any way, shape or form and something that's not right. The other the other thing in that moment, I, I don't know whether it was effective for you, but since we talked about the fact that there was a score in Buddy Boy. And we think there wasn't in the previous episodes. Yeah. In this, there were sounds. <laughs> I'm not going to go so far as to call them a score, but the, the sounds during that scene were, were very deliberately used as a kind of tension-elevating ploy. I mean, there is essentially no music in it. They, they, they use the screeches of corvids at various points to kind of yes try and heighten the tension um but you get something very rhythmic in that final scene and i i don't know whether you thought that was effective i knew that there were there were bird noises going on and there was the suckling noises and the mewing and the and uh and and the absence of the music but i and i even would have bet dollars to donuts that there was going to be something in that rocking chair because we had been previously shown the rocking chair rocking and they had made the comment about suckling and rocking chairs are historically sucking suckling chairs. So all of those pieces together said that that's where we're going. And despite that and whatever they did, whether it was sound or picture or shock, like I said, it got the hair up on my on my neck. I was expecting yeah. it, and yet it still didn't 
quite I wasn't able to to not hit that little that little peak when the the jump came I, so, I mean I, I thought the sound probably detracted from it for me because it was it was comical and so whatever I didn't notice that whatever really. whatever little impact that scene might have had anyway essentially dissipated by the kind of absurd banging sounds com- combined with this rather feeble visual so <laughs> didn't didn't do it for me i think really the one place where i really noticed the birds noises was when they were running the the beasts and they were th- firing the letters in and each one was punctuated with a with a squawk yes, yes. Uh, yeah, and, the, and the which thing that was what, what is put the moment that made the first place. It, it's the moment that made me think, "Oh yeah, yeah, I need to pay attention as if there's any music in this episode." But that because but that, that was, was that was that was giving notice that, that that this was using using sound in a musical way because, as you say, it was synchronized with the letters appearing on the screen, so it was not a natural background sound. It was orchestrated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I did not take the bird sounds at any other point to be anything other than actual sounds in the environment. Does that make sense? I, well, I think, I, think I didn't, the point I didn't think of it as a score. They could be, they yeah. could be sounds in the environment, but the, yeah, but they are being used in a way that isn't just, they are sounds in the environment. It is that the rhythm of them is important. Uh, not all the way through, but specifically there at the beginning, and specifically the the, the sounds you get in that in that final scene. And it, I mean, a lot of the sounds quite um, it's quite up front in your face almost. I mean, certainly mudslinger making those noises, supposedly making those noises in the basket, was pretty insistent and prolonged. It was. It was. That was that was definitely a. I think I'll just I'll just put the cat under the sink for a little while while I talk to you on the phone kind of thing. But well, we get to see an animal. The cat. What, mu- we saw him mu- for a moment. Yeah. Well, that's true, yes. <laughs> and they also had quite a lot more film in this episode. Yes. Yes, right. Yes, and all that. So that's definitely noticeable. Seems like maybe this is where the budget went that did not end up in a couple of the other episodes. I, I, I noticed it. I noticed it in the sense that there are there are very obvious. It's that it's that thing of um, because it's obviously you know of the era. Do you remember the Monty Python sketch where it says, "Gentlemen, we're surrounded by film." Yes, and, they, and you get the exterior shots that are shot on videotape, and you get those moments in this where you know Joe Joe arrives home from outside, and you get the exterior shots of her arriving at the. I mean, they call it a cottage, but the flipping thing's a manor house. She, <laughs> she, she, she arrives home with whatever she's carrying, and then it cuts to videotape with her carrying it into the studio set of the cottage interior. And Are you saying that that's not what your cottage looks like? Well, it's not quite the same dimensions, shall we say. And it doesn't have a oh. fireplace that is bigger than most of my rooms. Um, <laughs> But uh, I mean, there's also there's also a, a, a noticeable scene where they are coming outside, out of the front door. I think it is because normally they go in the kitchen mm-hmm. door. They come out of the front door. I noticed, ah, oh, the exterior of the front door is on videotape. 
Yeah. Whereas the, the, the exterior of the rest of the house is on film. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it's the kitchen door is on film, but the front door is on is on video. Yeah. Yeah. I do That's enjoy true. those things. I you know, I understand it and I I I guess it doesn't bother me. I think when I look at that, do you know what I think of more than anything else now? I think eh they're never gonna be able to do a decent high definition transfer of this. <laughs> Well, because, yes, you know, the film will be nice, but everything else will be, will be. Eh. Yes, indeed. <laughs> of course, is the reason why Spearhead from Space was uh, the first Doctor Who series with proper Blu-ray transfer. But yeah, I, I agree. I don't, I don't mind it. Uh, I, I quite like noticing it. But I think that the point about the Monty Python sketch is probably that at the time. It is just one of the things where you suspend your disbelief about this because it's part of the language of the of the way TV shows are made and everyone accepts it. And the funny thing about the sketch is that you're suddenly having your attention drawn to something that is obvious and constantly present. And yet until your attention is drawn to it, you've actually been tuning it out because you're used to it. And now, I, I... you know, looking back at it, we're not, as used to it, and so we don't necessarily tune it out. I've always wondered if the the relatively lower quality of televisions in that era made it less noticeable. It can't have been unnoticeable because the, it's not un, the, not the sketch wouldn't have made it. Might have made it less. So yes, yes, sure. I mean, a, a lot of a lot of uh, historical TV series that, that are still around by the time they've been restored and cleaned up and played on our HD TV sets are going to be in a form that it far exceeds the quality of what could have been seen even at the time despite the you know the years of fading and degradation or whatever so I think it's one of those strange paradoxes I understand a lot of episodes of Star Trek when they remastered the original series to Blu-ray and they did a you know, a proper original film transfer and what that suddenly you're noticing the coffee stains on Spock's uniform and <laughs> stuff like that, that just no one had ever had ever noticed. And they had to do some work on it to, to clean up stuff that just, you know, it was there, it was there in the film films, extremely high resolution, but you know, none of the, none of the prints that ever made it down to television stations uh, or TVs could, could detect it. So I suppose it's it's one of those things that the the purists like me who kind of say things like, Oh well if it if it wasn't shot in widescreen I don't want to watch it in widescreen and I it, you know, if it's made in black and white I don't want to see it colourised. And I guess we should be saying if it was made to be shown in in such poor resolution that you couldn't see Spock's coffee stains, damn it, I don't want to see it in high resolution. Yes, that is a bit of a paradox in your thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't mind the cleanup. So uh, no, I like uh, the fact, cleanup. I am being hypocritical. I I just yeah. I just noticed how how I, how I, how I am, but uh, I can't deny it. <laughs> okay, well, and then we've we've uh, we've 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 made one small step in progress here. You'll be you'll be <laughs> on the colorization wheel any time now. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I I, I am hugely enjoying seeing. <laughs> The X Files series one to four in widescreen, but I've justified why that is allowable 
Um, I'm not going to be watching anything colorized in the near future. I mean, I, I don't mind them restoring color. If, you know, if you've got a print invasion of the dinosaurs or, or ambassador of death right. or whatever, that the color was lost and now it's been restored, that's fine. But I, what I, what I would find strange is if you if you develop a process that actually lets you discover the color data from something that was originally shot in black and white and you start restoring things that were originally shot in black and white in studios where actually everything was dressed for contrast and it may have right. been all sorts of ridiculous colors but that wasn't what they wanted you to see what they wanted you to see was the black and white version of it i i had a i heard an interview once with raymond burr I don't remember exactly. It wasn't to do with colorization. Raymond Burr played Perry Mason, so um, very long time ago, and it it wasn't about colorization because I don't think that was an issue. But I, uh, what he was saying was, when you're filming television like they were filming television, it was they found it paradoxical or, or funny when he would be you know he'd look at Della Street and he'd say something. Well, you look really lovely tonight, Della, and the fact is she'd be green. Because the makeup they would use was a tint of green to get the right flesh tone on black and white film. Or what they felt was the right flesh tone. So, yeah, if they were actually able to discover the color data somehow in the black and white film crystals of the original film, I don't think you'd want to see it in color. I I mean, I don't think I'd want to see it in color. I, I would not mind it. There are, uh, it depends. It, it, it's going to depend. I mean, some shows are probably should have been shot in color and they shot them in black and white for cheap purposes and they did not really try to make it proper for, for black and white. Maybe? I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's all just artifice. So it's a, a group and a team of people fixing things up. So... What you know? Would I rather see? Would I rather see the the BBC take a good show? Would I rather see them take Quatermass and the Pit and take a talented team of people and do that up so that they are able to make that look good in widescreen and color and preserve the original acting and and directing for the most part because the widescreen would change it some but in other words if they could make that and put that and broadcast it on primetime television on the bbc right now would i rather see that or would i rather see them remake it and ruin it by well, making I, can it about I, can i please choose neither <laughs> i don't i i i think the fact the fact of the matter is i don't think that widescreen is necessarily an upgrade and i don't think that color is necessarily an upgrade and quatermass in the pit is a great example to make me realize that because it does look stunning and i i i I have the dvd of it and i was tempted to get the blu-ray of it because they have done such a cracking job of making it look and it's again it's a perfect example of something that we can watch now that is going to far exceeds the quality of anyone's viewing experience when that was going out live, which again right. is just astonishing. Right. So I don't know. But there is that there is that need need, desire 
In other words, it's a damn good story. It deserves to be seen by more people. I mean, the point of telling a story is so that people can and will hear it. And there is so much noise out there and there is so much conflicting material. If, if that improves its chance to be seen and heard by more people, I don't know. I, I'm not a snob about stuff where when it comes to, oh, you haven't, you haven't seen this. Oh, you're not a real, <laughs> whatever, science fiction fan. You know, the, these shows are meant to be seen by everybody. And, and I'd like to, everybody should see Quatermass in the freaking pit. It's, it's fantastic. You will not get everybody to watch it. But first off, because I have to subtitle the English for the, for the American speakers. But <laughs> anyway, that is drifting far away from this. Although, oddly, we are still on Nigel Neal's work. <laughs> Yes. Why? I wonder why we've drifted to a different approach. Um, let's see. It was only after we were talking about it later, or talking about the uh, uh, the episode, that I finally realized that whole bit with the beginning with the addled eggs was meant to give us a warning uh, that uh, that even birds can't have babies on this Mm -hmm. property. It just seemed like a, a random, pointless scene to kill time. Um, but but I realize it did actually have a it, it did have a thematic tie. I don't know that I have anything else that's actually about this particular episode. I enjoyed no. it. I I enjoyed it. Um, I I agree that these were unpleasant people, and I really really would have liked to have seen Peter get his comeuppance. Yes, right. He he's basically immune from everything that happens in this story. He's not terrified by it. He's not haunted by it. He's not uh, apparently not remotely concerned about his own child or wife. He does get there. quite upset about the pigs. He did get quite upset about the pigs, but that was that was him. And I got to say, he was so upset. I, I was joking about the subtitles on Quatermass, but I was not joking about the subtitles on this. I have no clue what the hell he was saying. When? When he was screaming about the, the pigs and what happened to him. Right. I, I I get that it involved him being with pigs and being in pig muck and and stuff, but I don't I did not get half of the words he spoke uh, because of the speed and the, the 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 way he was projecting his words and perhaps I just I didn't I mean I knew I knew from context what he was talking about and enough you know here and there, but this was not like. I did not get a narrative tale of what actually happened. I just know there was an incident with pigs and it was not pleasant. I don't know if the pigs, you know, humped him or and and trod on him and ground him into the muck or whether he just got crushed by I I just don't know. I got knocked over. He got knocked over. That's it. He got knocked over. Huh. He seemed to me like he'd been stampeded or something. I mean something really bad. I think he got, he got knocked over and, and uh, I, I, I can't remember. Knocked over and maybe he was trodden mm. on, but, um, you know, I, it, he was obviously making a, a big fuss about it. Yeah, I mean, he's more upset about being laughed at. Yeah. Which is a bit of a trope. The greenhorn getting, the old western greenhorn of the, of, uh, getting knocked down by the, the cow, the pig, the horse, the, the, the chickens, whatever. <laughs> 
and then the the old hands laughing at him. Uh, that that is that is a pretty old, is a pretty old trope. Um, no, I don't, I don't know that I have anything else. I don't know that I have anything else. Oh, I, you know, I will. I will say this: Dorothy, the wife. Yes. I somehow thought she'd end up being the witch or something. Oh. I did not think she was particularly sympathetic. No, oh, I quite like There was her. just something about the way she said things. I know she was drunk there half the time that we saw her, or maybe even longer. Um, but, you know, and that scene where she turns to go through the 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 freezer hole, or whatever we want to call it, and and Joe turns her back, and then Joe turns around and sees the sinister shadow, and she's nowhere to be found. And she darted off to another room and was back in the conversation without a word. I thought they were foreshadowing something there, too, that that somehow this was related. But apparently not. Apparently not. So, or she'd, you know, she'd pop up and she'd turn out and she's the local witch and her husband doesn't know about it. And <laughs> there's going to be, you know, you got this. I'll tell you what you've got here or something going on and we can fix it or i just i don't know it just it was just something about how random her character was in in the mix that it just like okay so yeah i i i don't know i i I did not dislike this story and like i say it worked reasonably well for me at the end but um but there's not a lot of not a lot of depth to it so, well, uh, nothing about the workmen. Well, they were a bit annoying. <laughs> I certainly, certainly found Stan quite unsympathetic. Yeah, he, he, I couldn't tell whether he was, uh, you know, I, I guess he's just color, you know, to the story, to the, to the, the country side. Of course, it obviously Arthur was being portrayed as being a little bit developmentally challenged, perhaps? Oh, I don't think so. That that sequence where he was up on the ladder and he was just going on about the eggs, and that seemed... I don't know. That seemed like they were trying to tell me something about the character, and, and it wasn't that he's just a sympathetic old guy. But later he was, meh, meh, just, I guess, okay. Maybe he's just meant to be simple. Um... Simple folk. Well, I guess then we are done with this episode of Beasts. Indeed. What is the next one? What big eyes? What big eyes? Mm. Hmm. Maybe that'll be about the corpse of a murdered whale. Because whales really big eyes. Or it could be about Red Riding Hood. Oh, yeah. Ah, so I didn't get the illusion there. Well, we'll find out. Simon, thank you for joining me. <laughs> it's a pleasure, as always. Listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at FusionPatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future 
by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. Next time on Fusion Patrol, join us for Revolution of the Daleks.